Morning, Bethel Church, and uh, a warm greeting to you here, first weekend in October. Great to have you here, and uh, a greeting to um, our campuses that are joining us here. And uh, I uh, thought I might begin just with a little uh, update on our daughter, Madeline. Even before the service, I had several people, what's going on, what's going on? And um, so if you're brand new, I have a three-month-old daughter we've been having some medical issues with. We discovered um, a couple weeks ago through kind of an emergency crisis that there was something not exactly uh, um, right inside. And um, so we had a test discovered that she has a reflux between her, kid, her, her bladder and her kidney. And these are all things I know nothing about. Now all of a sudden, you know, you become an expert on whatever it is because you're researching it and all. So that's, what's, uh, that's what she has. And this last week, we had a, uh, uh, an appointment with a specialist in Indianapolis that uh, we were looking forward to getting a game plan at least. How do we deal with this? What's it going to mean? And uh, we went down bags packed because we thought he might say... This is so, because she has it very severely, and we thought maybe they were just going to say, we're doing surgery now. So we went down in case that was going to happen, ready to go. And um, we sit down, and he says, well, we're going to wait. And we were expecting wait. We had been told that a few months till she gets a little bit bigger to do surgery. And he said, we're going to wait till she's maybe three, three and a half years old. And we're like... Okay, we weren't expecting that. And he went on to explain that somewhere around 40% of the time with uh, infants that have her condition, it will self-resolve. And uh, if it doesn't, then uh, surgery can uh, fix it. But in the meantime, we can pray. And so we're going to be regularly praying that this uh, issue that she has will um, will resolve. And I just want to say to you, I know so many people have been asking and wondering and praying, and we just so appreciate our church family loving us in this and uh, feeling our angst as we've kind of walked this uh, surprise path that God has had us on, uh, like the desert song uh, that we have sung this morning in uh, the season. You know, there's certain seasons of life, and we're, we've been in one here, and so thank you so much for uh, all that you've done to support us in this, and um, we love you very, very much. All right, with that said, uh, let me just offer a quick prayer that God would bless the preaching of his word today. Would you join me? Father, we just ask that you please would indeed take your word, move it into our hearts, and through our hearts, Lord, we pray that it would do its good and uh, perfect work, that it would conform us to the likeness of Christ, that it would change our church, that it would change us individually, that we might be aligned with your will, which is found in your word. We thank you for your word today. Spirit, come and do your work amongst us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to begin by just reading our text today, and uh, we're studying in 1 Peter. We have transition. We've been talking about suffering in chapter 4. We get to chapter 5, and Peter now turns his attention to uh, leadership, leadership in the church. Here's what he says, 1 Peter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, giving oversight, 
not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So, as I just said, Peter transitions now into the whole matter of leadership, and specifically leadership in the church of Jesus Christ. There is a a character and a conduct of church leaders that he identifies as elders. You see that there? Elders. So I exhort the elders among you. Now you could look at that and say, oh, he's referring to the senior citizens in the church. Those that have been around the block, around the sun a few times, the mature, the experienced, those that are a tad older. And actually, the word here is used uh, at times to refer to chronological age, but that is not what he's talking about here. He is talking about uh, an, an office in the church, a role and an office in the church known as elder. So let's talk about elders first of all, and then we'll get into what Peter is saying about elders, but just to talk about elders in the New Testament church. If you read in Acts, begin reading in Acts, you're going to discover that very quickly on, one of the high priorities in the local church was the establishing of leadership. Establishing of leadership. Peter, uh, or uh, not Peter, Luke writes Acts, and you get to Acts 6. So the first leaders in the church, of course, are the apostles. You get to Acts 6, and there's widows who are not being ministered to and served in an in a equitable way. And so what do they do? They establish a group of godly men who handle the matter of serving the widows in the church. I believe the prototypes of the later office known as deacon in the church. You get a little bit longer later in the story, you read through 1 Timothy 3, and by the time Paul writes 1 Timothy 3, there is already an official office in the church known as deacon. Diakonos means literally servant. And deacons from the beginning are those that lead in the serving ministries of the church. And we are very blessed by the deacons of this church, and that office needs to be viewed highly especially in a place where the leader of the church said those that are, uh, or greatness in the kingdom of God is to be the servant of all. To be a diakonos in the church is a high and holy calling. Amen. Okay, amen. But he's not talking about deacons here. He is talking about elders. So you read through Acts, and a little bit later in the story, all of a sudden in Acts 11, the church at Antioch has elders, leaders in the church known as elders. By Acts 15, there is a doctrinal issue that the apostles gather with the elders of the church at Jerusalem to collaborate on uh, a resolution. So you had elders at the church of Antioch, you have elders at uh, the Jerusalem church. We find in Acts 14 that the apostle Paul and Barnabas are retracing their steps from their missionary journey, and the text says this is what they were doing as they went to each city on their way back to Jerusalem. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, I'm sure they did a lot of other things. They fellowshiped, they taught, they, you know, were doing that. But one of the big priorities was establishing leadership, and they identified them by laying hands on them. You can read in Titus 1, Paul sends Titus to the island of Crete. 
And he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Notice, elders, plural, in every town, singular. And we see there and in other places that God's plan for the local church is a plurality of leaders. Not one leader, a plurality of leaders. Now you might say, well, why, why, why a plurality? I mean, why would you have more than, than one? For the same reason, I think, that whenever you watch the Tour de France, there's always groups of five or six guys that have the same jersey on, right? They're like the U.S. Postal Team or the whatever team. They're riding as a team. And they have found over time that if you're an individual rider, you can't win the race. Why? Because nobody by himself has all the skills needed to win the Tour de France. You need somebody that's good at climbing hills that others can draft on. You need somebody that's a sprinter. You need somebody that's a strategist. All these different skills, and no one person has everything that's needed for that team to win. And similarly, in the church, there is nobody but Jesus who has all of the gifts and all of the insights and all of the uh, necessary skills in order to lead a local church. And in the wisdom of God, he has ordained, called us to establishing a plurality of leadership in every local church. Elders is the term that is used here. Working together in harmony to bring, uh, and to, to bring the, the sheep to maturity. So just to say specifically, what is an elder? An elder is a recognized and authorized leader and shepherd in the church whose responsibility it is to lead, to feed, and to oversee the church. That is an elder. And the importance of this role is not, uh, it's an elevated role not because the elder himself is elevated. Uh, it's, an ele- it's not an elevated role even because of the inherent worth of the people of the church. It is an elevated role because of whose church it is, okay? Whose church it is. It reminds me of a scene in Downton Abbey. Now, I remember we were watching through the Downton Abbey series, and uh, there was this one scene, and I thought, someday I'm going to use that in a sermon. Today's the day, okay? Today is the day. And uh, if you're not familiar with Downton Abbey, it's... it's uh, PBS series that there's a, an estate and a really beautiful kind of castle mansion that um, a guy named Lord Grantham is, is the, uh, uh, in charge of. He's the, the, head, the head guy, the earl of the estate. And there's a scene where they're walking. He and this guy named Matthew, who is the heir apparent, are walking, and they look through sort of the trees, and they see Downton Abbey, the, the building. And there's this little interchange, and here's how it goes. Lord Grantham says, you do not love this place yet, Matthew Crawley. Well, obviously it's, and Lord Grantham interrupts him, no, you don't love it. You see a million bricks that may crumble, a thousand gutters and pipes that may block uh, block and leak, and stone that will crack in the frost, Matthew Crawley. But you don't, Lord Grantham, I see my life's work. Now, you could look at that and say, oh, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. The elders are like Lord Grantham, right? And the, uh, the, 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 no, that's all, okay? The elders are like Lord Grantham in the story. That's not what it is. The elders are like Matthew Crawley. 
The Lord of the church is who? Church. It is Jesus Christ. Let's have that clearly in our minds, right? The Lord of the church is Jesus. The Lord of the estate is Jesus. The elders are the caretakers. The elders are the servants in the church, the stewards of the house. It is not the elder's life work that makes being an elder or the church valuable and priceless. It is Christ's life work and serving the church and giving his life and paying the price with his blood to redeem the church that makes every local church precious and the privilege to serve in the church of Jesus Christ as a leader precious. It's not the elder, and it's not you, the people. It is whose church it is that infuses all of what we are doing here with eternal significance. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The local church in the plan of God is a part of the universal church is high and holy because our Savior is high and holy and loves the church and gave himself up for it. Lots of good places for amens here, church. I'm just saying. And so Peter comes then now and talking about leadership, he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I find this interesting, old Peter, remember old Peter wanting to argue that he's the greatest, that he's better than all the rest, all the others may fail you, I will never fail you. Remember Peter, Mr. like, oh, I'm the greatest around here. We see in this statement right here another example of the humility that God had worked in Peter's heart. He doesn't say, I, Peter, the bishop of the church, I, Peter, you know, the head of the disciples, the head of the apostles, what does he say uh, 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 the opposite of? He says, I'm just a fellow elder amongst with you. He says, I am on your level. And he brings himself down and says, we're just all servants in this house, aren't we? Love that. Love that. And you see the signs of maturity in Peter's life. Which is good because he's going to talk about the need to be humble as a leader in the church. And he gives them an example right there in that statement. So let's get into now, well, what, is a, what is an elder? And, and by the way, if you're sitting here thinking to yourself, uh, two things you might think. Number one, why should I care about this, right? Why should I care about this? Because, and I'm going to share this later, the the value of an elder, the higher, the better the elders in the church, the better it is for the sheep in the church. The better the shepherd, the better the sheep. And so sheep had better be able to identify quality spiritual leadership and what that is supposed to look like. And the failure of sheep to know what that is supposed to look like explains why so many professing Christians go to churches and are involved in ministries where clearly the leadership is fleecing the flock and taking advantage of the church. And it's the sheep not knowing what they should be looking for that allows them to stay and remain in that. Second thing that is important in this as we talk about it is Peter is going to describe what spiritual leaders look like, but in reality what he is describing is what spiritual maturity looks like. 
And when you read like through Paul's list of qualifications for an elder, you can't look at that and go, oh, it doesn't apply to me. I'm never going to be an elder. They're never going to ask me. You know, so who cares? Those are all, these are all things that every godly Christian will aspire to. And when we hold them up and we say, what does spiritual maturity look like? It looks like what Peter and Paul are describing, those that ought to be in leadership, the character and the conduct of their life. So for those two reasons, this is important for all of us, and maybe you can come up with some more. So what is Peter saying here? And you'll notice that Peter basically gets into this, it's not this, but this, okay? Not this, but this. We do that in, in, in conversation a lot. Not that, but that. And we sort of draw a contrast. That's what Peter is doing here. Not this, which is all too common, but that, which is really what good shepherding looks like. So notice the first thing that he says is just an exhortation. What are elders to do? They are to shepherd the flock. That's what he says. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. As we, as we develop this thought of what is a spiritual leader, what is an elder, we have great glimpse at this. And by the way, the words that are used here are the three words that are used for spiritual leaders in the church. We have the word, and this will give you a little church history help as well. The first word for elder is presbyteros in the Greek. Does that sound like anything you've heard of? Presbyterian, right? Yeah. So the Presbyterians, they take that word and they say that's our denomination. The second, and that means elder. Second word is episkopos. Does that sound like anything? Episcopalian, okay? They take that and that's how they get their name. And the third word that we find here is the verb form of the noun word for pastor, okay? Pastor, all in one verse, we got the three words here. All of them, I believe, synonymous, and you could look at them this way. Elder is the office. Overseer is the responsibility of the elder. The elder is to give oversight. And shepherd is the heart and the function of the elder, to shepherd the flock. This is in the imperative. This is a command. If you could hear Peter, like if he was to read this, hey, Peter, read your letter to us. Would you do it? When he got to this point, he would raise his voice and he would say, elders, shepherd the church and get elevated like that. That's the sense of it here. He is commanding elders to do this. Why? Because nothing, nothing is more dishonoring to the glory of the Lord of the house than when those that are in charge of the, the under-shepherds in the house are being passive or being derelict or are being lazy. These and many other things do not honor the Lord of the house. And so Peter says, shepherd the flock. Elders need to be about shepherding the flock. How? As I've said, elders shepherd the flock by leading, feeding, and overseeing the church. That is their responsibility. And for us as sheep, and in a sense this is sort of where the metaphor breaks down because shepherds are sheep themselves. But for, the, for us as sheep, we ought to want the highest quality shepherding that we possibly can have. Because again, the better, the higher the quality of the leading and the shepherding by those that are leaders in the church, the better it is for the sheep that are in the church. The worse that it is, 
The negligent, the derelict leadership in the church, who suffers for that? The church does. The church does. And maybe you've been in situations in your sort of spiritual journey where a breakdown in leadership, you saw the effect that it has in that local church and the pain and the divisiveness and all these things. When, when, elders, when shepherds aren't shepherding, it's the sheep that suffer. So we ought to want the best shepherds that we can get and to pray that God would equip our shepherds to be even better than they are. And, you know, it's just, this is like right out of my experience this week with uh, our daughter Madeline. When we found out she had a problem, what do we do? Do we just go in the yellow pages and go, let's just find some guy that'll tell us what we need to know maybe here. Let's look under here. Pick it at random. One, two, three. Let's go to him. Is that what we did? If you think that's what we did, you don't know me very well because we found out that we needed to get a specialist. And so we said to our pediatrician, who would you recommend? And she gave us a list of five names, three in Chicago, two in Indianapolis, that she would recommend specialists in pediatric urology. Whoever knew of a thing like that, never heard of it before. So he gives us five names. Well, I call my years ago, and all these years I've had a good friend named Jim Williams who teaches the kidney at IU Med School, like PhD on the kidney. That's all he does is the kidney. So I called my friend Jim Williams. I said, Jim, this is like your area. You're like a, you know, expert in this. Here's the problem. Who would you recommend? And he gave a name, and the name he gave as being the top guy in this field was one of the five names that our pediatrician had recommended. So we're like, hmm. And he said, I'll write a personal letter on your behalf to him. I'm feeling better about this guy in particular at this point. And then we did some checking, and of all the five names, there were only two that were in our, our network for health insurance, and he was one of them. Sold! Sold! Right there, right? Right there. So guess who we went to see? We went to see this doctor, had a very good visit with him, and felt good that we were getting the highest quality care that we could for our daughter. Because the better the doctor, the more likely the, the better the health for our child, and spiritually the same is true. That it, the, the, the higher the quality of the eldering and the shepherding and the leading, the better it is for the sheep in the church. And the sheep ought to want that and pray for that and encourage that and understand what is a biblical shepherd. So that if the leadership, for example, of this church starts sort of veering off in some direction, the sheep understand that's not what it's supposed to look like right there. It burdens me, I don't have time for this, but it's just a side note, it burdens me to turn on the TV and to see unbiblical shepherding packing out stadiums and people professing to be Christians lauding the unbiblical eldering. And for that to be wildly popular requires sheep who don't know what a shepherd looks like. That was a side note. Was that a good one? I think maybe there was a good truth to that. And so when people come to me and say, have you read this book and it's one of these guys? This is an awesome book. You need to read this, Pastor Steve. I think to myself, no. And the fact that you are drawn to that 
unbiblical shepherding tells me something about your understanding of what biblical shepherding should look like. And we want better for you in that. Now, I will admit, it's hard to talk about this subject uh, humbly or without, you know, that, like this is what we're doing. And so hear my heart in that. I'm acknowledging that it's hard to, to, to talk about this because I am an elder here and a shepherd here. So I feel that tension as I'm talking about this, and I want to pro- approach this in a proper uh, humility. But there's truth that needs to be said. Finally, notice here that he says that it is the flock of God. It is the flock of God. Why is that important? Because it's easy for shepherds to think that this is my flock. This is my church. It's even easy for sheep to think that it's their church. One commentator says, well, a church that could be ours would only be a false church. So the sheep are not ours for us to use or misuse as we like. If we lose one, we lose another's property, not our own. And he is not indifferent to what becomes of his flock. The church is not the pastor's church. The church is not the church's church. I remember many years ago, we were contemplating a a big change in the church. And I had somebody that said to me, uh, that was not for the change. We were here before you came, and we'll be here when you're gone. This is our church. Really? Because last time I checked, this church was bought with the precious blood of Jesus. I've never seen you shed a drop of blood for this church. This is not your church, and this is not my church. We all better understand whose church this is. This is the Lord Jesus' church, and this is God's flock, and we have the privilege of being a part of it. So now Peter describes quality shepherds with a series of three, not this, but that's, okay? Notice, first of all, not duty, but delight. He says, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, okay? Willingly. We see here that God is not honored by half-hearted, okay, I'll do it if nobody else wants to do it, type eldering. That is not honoring to God. It's not honoring in any of our levels of service here. When we just sort of do it because I gotta do it, there's no joy in it, there's no sort of enthusiasm about it, there's no delighting in it. God is not honored by simply our duties. Now, I will tell you, there are times, honestly, when in the dead of winter, getting up and preaching the 815 service, I don't spring out of bed like, oh, you know. (laughs) Gotta preach the 815 service. You know, you look outside and the snow's blowing and I'd rather stay home today. And many of you do, sadly. (laughs) Y'all would do better to feel a little better duty to coming to church, but, and I, you know, there are meetings that I have to have that I'm not, I don't walk into those meetings humming the hallelujah chorus, right? I'm not, like, I'll be glad when this is done. But the psalmist says it clearly, 
Serve the Lord with gladness. Psalm 100, verse 2. Paul writes about elders, he who desires the office of overseer desires a good thing. Down on that heart level, there ought to be in the shepherd a gladness to be a shepherd, a gladness to serve in the church, an enthusiasm about loving the sheep that Jesus loves. I think this applies in a way to all of us, frankly. There ought to be in every Christian a willing desire to have expanding spheres of fruit bearing. Okay? It's not just the non-elder who's considering to be an elder that ought to have a sort of willingness about them. But all of us should, in our hearts, have a desire for opportunities to bear more fruit for the Lord Jesus, don't you think? So that that assistant Sunday school teacher, when he or she is approached with an opportunity that might allow them to have a little more impact, reach, minister to a few more people, there ought to, it's, it, ought to, it shouldn't be like, no, unless I decide yes. There ought to be in our hearts a yes, unless there's some reason I should say no. Or that assistant small group leader who's approached, hey, you know what, we see gifting in you. What do you think about maybe leading your own group? The default for us shouldn't be no. It ought to be yes, unless there's some compelling reason to be no. Why? Because I want to bear fruit in my life for the Lord. And to have that kind of willingness, a general sort of like, I'll give it a go. I'll give it a go. And see what the Lord would do. I think we should be happy for opportunities to serve the Lord Jesus, don't you? Okay, so... Not a duty, not a got to make the donuts, but I get to serve Jesus. I'm happy to do it. Count on me. Here my Lord, send me, right, Isaiah? Second, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, okay? Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. It's interesting, Peter brings up the leader's perspective on money. And Paul does the same. Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, we have qualifications for an elder. Here's what Paul writes. Not a lover of money, 1 Timothy 3, 3. Not greedy for gain, Titus 1, 7. The Apostle Paul writes this uh, regarding gain. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now I bring that up because the Bible does say that there is legitimate financial support that can flow to leaders in the church. This is part of God's plan as well. That is not illegitimate and that's not unseemly. It is good, high, holy, wonderful, and a blessing to the church that leaders are free then to devote all their time and energy to shepherding the sheep of the church. What Peter is warning about is illegitimate gain and a heart that loves money and is is in it somehow for the money. That is a red flag regarding a candidate to be a leader in the church. When money is the motive, something is wrong down in the heart. Now you might say to yourself, 
Oh, you're like talking about those prosperity teaching evangelist types that pass, like the, that pass the offering plate like four times and then they j- jump in their Gulfstream jet and they fly to the next engagement to take four more offerings and then they go to the, that's the kind, is that what you're talking about? Yes, I would say, I could say that, yes, generally, but there wasn't any of that going on when Peter writes this, okay? What Peter, I think, has in mind is not the jet-setting tele-evangelist type, but that normal guy in the church who sees leading in the church, down in his heart, down deep down here, there is an impulse, a motive where if I do that, I think I can work it. I think I can, I think I can get something out of that if I say yes to being a part of this or if I sort of connect with the right person. I'm going to try to leverage this for my own personal profit and gain. That's what Peter has in mind. That guy is not an elder. He is a mercenary. So again, it's one thing to make money. It's another thing to serve for it or to serve the money itself. And here's one reason that this is especially dangerous is that who are the people in the church that are responsible for handling the finances of the church and making decisions about money and having some access to that? It's the leaders of the church. If the leaders of the church are in it for the money and they have access to the money, that's a formula for problems. And all of us have heard Things that have happened in local churches where money somehow was the problem. You say, well, wait, money wasn't the problem. In a sense, it wasn't. It was the heart of the leadership towards the money that was the problem. And Peter, wisely, talking in the first century, says, sheep, understand when you look at who you want to have leading you, don't go for the guy that's in it for the money. So the elder and the pastor, and I say this to myself, has to constantly check his heart. Why am I doing what I am doing? Do I do it because of love for God or love for money? Am I doing it because I love God's people or am I doing it somehow for money? And I'll tell you another danger with leaders, and I want you to be on the lookout for this, are leaders that fleece the flock, And there's all kinds of ways that leaders can sort of work over the church for their own personal gain. I remember a situation here in the state of Indiana where there was a very popular pastor who quietly was asking members of the church for money, personal loans, all throughout the church. Nobody knew what was going on. Nobody knew the other people were doing it. And then it all came out, all of the money that he had taken from members of the church. I have another friend of mine, he swore that, he was an associate pastor, he swore that every December his senior pastor would wear his most out-of-date clothing. And he thought it was for sure because he wanted to garner Christmas sympathy for him. And I think there might have been some truth to it, honestly. You say, oh, nobody would ever do that kind of thing. The heart is desperately wicked, who can know it? And there isn't any spiritual leader ever since Jesus that there isn't that kind of tension in the heart. Like Paul writes, he meets with the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, and he says, while I was with you for three years, I never coveted anyone's gold or silver. And that's where you want your leaders to strive to land, 
where it's not about that. Their hearts are for the Lord and for his people. A sign of false teacher is that they love money, right? The Pharisees loved money. Judas betrayed Jesus for money. And I have found it to be an absolute truth. If you really want to know where people's heart is at, look at what they do with their money. How they use it. How they spend it. How they give it or don't give it. And faithfulness with personal money is a sign of spiritual maturity. And so when you look at somebody to be a spiritual leader, if their personal finances are in chaos and all you do is you look in and you know, they're, they're, they're in counseling because of finance, you read in the paper, they've you know, been bankrupt three times and this is going on. That's not the person you want leading the church because that shows other issues in the heart. It's not just true for shepherds, by the way. Unless you sheep get all like, yeah, those shepherds, they need to, you know, they need to be honoring God with their money. It is an absolute truth for all of us. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we just, we have it as a rule. It's in our constitution that nobody is established in leadership in this church unless there is demonstrable faithfulness in giving to the church. And I like that. And the reason I like that is there is a lot of wonderful appearing people, but with that, it smokes out the pretenders. It smokes out the pretenders. So not for shameful gain, not in it for the money, not fleecing the flock, not working it, but eagerly doing it with the right motive, enthusiastic. And then the third is this, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. I put down not Caesar, but Jesus. Okay, Who do you want as, a, as your spiritual leader? Not Caesar, not Nero. You want Jesus. And why do we say Jesus? Because Jesus sets the example of what servant leadership looks like. Can anybody question that Jesus was in it for the right reasons? Can anybody suspect his motives for leading the church? No. Why? He gave his life for the church. Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. That example of love, that that setting an example is so clearly seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not come to serve, uh, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And may it be true for the leaders of our church, Bethel Church, that you know, there's no thrones around here. I've been to so many churches where you know, the, leader, the leadership would sit on the, on the stage, not so much anymore, but back in the day, and you'd have like, you know, You'd have the little chair, the little chair, the little chair. Those were the associate pastors. Then you had the throne chair. Little chair, little chair, little chair, little chair. And you walk in the auditorium and you're like, hmm, I wonder what the leadership style is like around here when you have the throne on the stage, right? (laughs) I'm glad we don't do that. Because we want what Jesus says here. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And the great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And that's that model of servant 
leadership. And Peter says, look for guys that are like that and exhorts the elders, be that. Be an example. Set an example. You get a church where there's thrones in it and everybody is trying to one-up everybody else, right? But when the leadership is taking the lowest place, now everybody looks and says, oh, wait a second. Apparently in this church, greatness is servanthood. Greatness is service. And I call our leadership team to set an example. I call myself to that, to take up the basin and the towel and to wash the feet of this church. And for you to see men humbling themselves, serving you, giving time and energy for your spiritual good ought to cause you to say, wow, if those guys are doing that, who can I serve here? This is not easy, and you need to give your elders some grace here, and you want to say, why isn't it easy? It should be easy. No, it's not. The reason it's not is that is because of the sheep. Sheep are smelly. Sheep are unruly. Sheep are hard to lead. They like to stand around a lot. They're not eager to sort of head for that, uh, those still waters like Psalm 23 talks about. Sheep bite their shepherds. Did you know that? There are sheep that will bite their shepherds. If you listen carefully in any church, you'll hear, you know, why are we doing this? Why is this happening? Why is he leading? And what's the shepherd called to do? love through all of it. And notice the finally, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And someday the head shepherd is coming back. And on that day, to have served in the church will be a great day, a crown of glory, an eternal sort of distinction that those that served uh, the Lord of the house, the the chief shepherd well, will be honored and will be held in high regard. Someday, It'll be a great privilege to have served in the church. And I think Peter puts that out there for us to say, you know what? For all of the bites and the whines and the complaints, in the end, it'll be worth it all when we see Jesus. So encourage your elders, church. Encourage your leaders. This is true on all the different levels. You got a small group leader? Write them a note of encouragement. Let them know how much you appreciate what they're doing. If you're involved in some ministry where somebody is giving time and energy to lead that and, and all that, make sure that they know how much you appreciate what they're, what they're doing. And as healthy shepherds lead healthy sheep, that's a, lot, that's a local church that rocks, right? And that's what we want here. That's what we want here. So may God raise up godly leadership and sheep who are happy to follow them. And we'll have very, very good days ahead.